Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors. This is episode 182. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. November's prize is a copy of Adrian Dillard's latest novel, Keeper of the Queen's Jewels, a novel of Jane Seymour. Thank you so much to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. Next month, I'll be chatting to historian Matt Lewis about Richard III and the princes in the Tower. You don't want to miss this one. Further details will be published on Patreon. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you using or wearing your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to discuss priest hides is Phil Downing. Phil's a historical reenactor and manager of Harvington Hall a stunning Elizabethan manor house in Worcestershire. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Phil. How are you? I'm very well, Natalie. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's been a little while since we've chatted. I, I feel privileged. This is my third time on Talking <laughs> Tutors. So uh, thank you very much for having me back. I'm surprised you had me back again after last time. But All right. So, Phil, because it has been a while, can you please just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah. Uh, so my name's Phil Downing. I am a, uh, I'm not a historian, but I am uh, the manager of a house called Harvington Hall in Worcestershire, which you very recently visited. Yes. Um, which is known for its very many priest hides, so or priest holes we're going to be talking about, uh, which is more than any other house in England. So I'm an absolute Tudor uh, nut. I love Tudors uh, more than most things. <laughs> um, as you've seen, I wear various costumes and uh, very recently just started portraying the young Henry VIII, uh, which is quite a daunting uh, character to try and portray. But uh, that's basically me. So I'm, I'm, I'm a lover of Tudor history. I'm not a fan of anything else, really, and particularly <laughs> later. I go as far as the gunpowder plot, and that's me. I'm, I'm finished there. So, uh, so I'm quite, uh, I think, a bit like you, I think, where we kind of just Tudors is the main, main thing, really. Yeah. Well, you go further than me. I don't get to the gunpowder plot, so that's pretty good. So you mentioned priest holes there, Phil. So can you tell us exactly what they are? Like, what is a priest hole or a priest hide? And why did they come about and when are they used? Okay, so priest holes, I mean, it's, it's, I get a real bee in my bonnet about priest holes. A lot of what you read on the internet, a lot of it is is quite, it's not necessarily wrong that the information's misguided a little bit. So the term priest hole is what a term that most people would have heard of, well, a lot of people would have heard of, and some people have never heard of them. But priest holes or priest hides is what I call them and what many other people call them, uh, are secret hiding places built within the very walls of a Catholic house uh, to keep a Catholic priest safe during the times of persecution, which, which we'll talk about. The term priest hide is more accurate than priest hole. And the amount of times I've had people tell me it's not, it's not called a priest hide, it's called a priest hole. Some priest hides are big enough to house many priests in there. I mean, you could charge a good rent in London for some of the size of some of them. I mean, some of them are proper rooms, so they're not holes, they are rooms. Some of them are probably as big as some people's living rooms, you know, so they're not necessarily these little holes. So that's effectively what they are. But why they've come about, I'll keep this very brief and people have to go back to the other podcast I was on with you because I went to a bit more depth with it. But the simple answer is, and the first myth to debunk is it's nothing to do with Henry VIII's break with Rome because that's the first thing that people tend to say. It's nothing to do with Henry VIII. Effectively, it's to do with uh, Elizabeth I. So Elizabeth comes to the throne and in 1559, you have the Act of Uniformity. Uh, and Catholic mass is banned at this point. Uh, and then a series of things happen where the Pope excommunicates Elizabeth in 1570. Uh, you have the arrival of the seminary priests and the Jesuit priests. And then eventually in 1585, it becomes illegal for a Catholic priest to even set foot on English soil. Now, you have something called recusancy fines. Now, recusants uh, are the refusers. These are the Catholic gentry that refuse to attend the Church of England service on a Sunday. Uh, so they were fined for not going to, to, to church. So... The fine uh, eventually was increased to £20 a month from 12 pence a week. So you're talking thousands of pounds a month for not attending church. So the Catholic gentry effectively need to still hear mass. They still need to receive the sacraments. And this is why priest hides are, are then built into houses. But there are two types of hiding place that they date from different periods. So you have what you call or what we would call today a massing stuff hide or a vestment hide. Now, these are the hiding, uh, the hiding places for priest vestments. Uh, the religious books, crucifixes, the candlesticks, the rosaries, anything that you find on an altar, uh, and they would have to be hidden away. So 
We call them the massing stuff hide today or investment hide. But actually, in Elizabethan times, they were secret corners. Now, secret corners were the first type of hiding place that came into effect. And they came into effect literally from 1559. And you find many of these in churches. There's actually a secret corner, literally a few meters away from me, up above in the room upstairs, which is the chapel. And guess where it's positioned? In the corner of the room. (laughs) Hence the name secret corner. But the need for priest hides come about really from 1574, which is when the seminary priests start to arrive back in England. So they've been trained abroad in northern France, come back into England disguised, and then they start to uh, obviously say the mass for for the gentry. So the first hiding place recorded or priest hide for a man uh, was in 1574 in York. But six years later, so in 1580, the uh, seminary priests were joined by the the Jesuit priests. Now, priests started off being itinerant. They were constantly, um, constantly on the move at the time. Um, And there was actually a quote that basically says a priest must be on the move lest he be taken. So it just says, you know, shows that they were moving around at the time. So priest hides weren't really a thing still in 1580. So in 1585, it was made legal to be a priest. But then in 1586, um, you had the meeting or it's a, a conference, a secret conference, at a place called Harleyford in Berkshire. And this was a meeting that was held by three Jesuits, William Weston, uh, who was the Jesuit superior at the time, Father Henry Garnet, Father Robert Southwell and uh, the composer William Bird, amongst others. So they had this conference in July 1586 where they would set about creating safe houses for priests to hide and they would set about how they would smuggle priests back into the country and, and various things like that. So that, that's where priest hides would then became a thing from 1586 onwards. Now, by this point, uh, some 300 priests has arrived back in England over the 12-year period of when they started arriving in 1574. So 300 had arrived, but About 130 were still actually only at work. So some had died through illness. Some of them were incarcerated in prison. Uh, Many had been banished. Some had fled by their own accord. They fled. And 33 had also been executed at this point. So you could see why there's a need for priest hides at that point. Now, priest hides for men were not called priest holes or priest hides those years ago. It was actually called a conveyance. So that's what uh, priest hides actually are called conveyances. Now, that's a term that many people won't have heard. It's not something that's documented that much, but that's what they're, they're looking for. So that's kind of how they've come about. In February 1592, so Henry Garnet, who was the, the Jesuit superior at this point, because uh, William Weston had been imprisoned by this point, he wrote a letter back to Rome that was smuggled out of England that said, basically, stop sending priests over as there's simply nowhere left to hide. So it shows still even in the early 1590s, there weren't that many priest hides in existence at that point. But by the 1590s, you have three types of Catholic house. So you have one uh, that was visited by an itinerant priest. So one who's traveling around. And these were known as out priests. So these are the ones that were out and about. Then you have those that are living in with the family. So they're, they're priests that are serving the family and the local neighborhood. So that's your other kind of house. And then your other kind of house is what was known to the government as receptacles. So these are houses, they're major centres with several priest hides in them. And there were about two dozen of those that were documented, but only two of those receptacles still survive. One of them being Harvington Hall, where I'm currently sitting, where we have seven priest hides. And the other is a place called Ufton Court in Berkshire, where they still have four priest hides. But we know there are other houses, uh, particularly one uh, 10 miles away from here called Hindley, that had 11 hiding places in total. 
So that is a huge number of hides. Let's say we've got seven, but actually we've only got half a house left. So potentially we have more than that. So the most intense periods of building priest hides are between 1588 and 1605. So you can put it really between the Spanish Armada and the gunpowder plot. One of my favorite bits of dating uh, for a priest hide is at Hinlip, which I said is the house that had 11 priest hides. It appears when it was built that they have no gatehouse or gate wing or, or, or sort of one section of the house. But when the priesthood has arrived in 1592, this gatehouse uh, now was there. And they <laughs> that basically they complained to the Privy Council that they were reduced to squinting through the keyhole because they were not allowed in the house. But in that section of the house that they were squinting through, uh, it actually had two hiding places in there. So, and this was in 1606. So we know that within that sort of period, those, those hiding places were built. But the executions for priests tail off in 1606. So the need for sort of hiding gets lessened. So that's, that's why you can see that, that the time for building is, is more the Elizabethan period. So you, the executions tail off in 1606. A dozen priests were executed in the 1610s, three priests in the 1620s, and none in the 1630s. But then due to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1642, uh, they begin again. And a reason why we know the dating of priest hides being Elizabethan is uh, a house, a place called Mosley Old Hall, which isn't too far away from here. Uh, the owner, the man that lived there, Thomas Whitgreave, told Samuel Pepys, that well-known man, uh, that the hides the king in 1651 was made to hide, was in time of persecution of four time. So the king was forced to hide in a hiding place that came before his period. So again, it shows that it's Elizabethan. And it was, it was uh, there's another place that was described during the Civil War as a old, well-concealed hiding place. And there was another priest in Lancashire during the Civil War uh, that preferred to hide in the coal house as the hide was no longer safe because it was a hide of an older time. So these are kind of the datings that, that you can see, priest hides and when they were used, but they were again used during the Civil War time. And when Charles II uh, returned in 1660, the need for priest hides sort of ceased for a time, but then came back with something called the Titus Oates plot, or more commonly known as the Popish plot, which was between 1678 and 1681. So there was a need for priest hides again, which might shock people because I think a lot of people just think priest hides are used just for the time um, of Elizabeth I and James I. And unfortunately, there was a need for them again in 1688. Uh, but a priest in Herefordshire spent six weeks in a lime kiln uh, as he didn't trust the old hides from a time before. And then you have the Jacobite Risings of uh, 1715 and 1745. So that's, again, when they were needed. That's really the last time priest hides were needed. But then hiding places were used then for smugglers and not priests after that period. And these were smugglers' hides. They weren't really the priest hides that, that we know of. But the interesting thing is, uh, so by 1713, the king's hide at Boscobel, so that's King Charles II we're talking about now, the hide that he had at his at, at a place called Boscobel, uh, was on show to the public by um, 1713. But obviously I said you use them later on. Yeah, so that's basically it. But what happened was uh, in the late 1700s and later than that, you get all the novels, Agatha Christie uh, and all of these sort of novels that talk about secret hiding places, secret passages. And this is where many owners, and there's something that really bugged me, that many owners uh, decided to start putting in priest hides, but they were fake ones. And this is where I have many uh, discussions with people where they start saying, oh, we've got a priest hide in our house, or we know someone who's got a priest hide in their house. The chances are they don't have a priest hide, 
probably the owner thought, oh, this is a good opportunity, let's build one. Or you just find a cupboard and it looks a bit secretive, so we'll call it a priest hive. And the classic example of this, so uh, in 1820, a place called Aston Hall, which is in Birmingham, uh, they had there what was described as a secret place under the Great Staircase. But the amusing thing is the bill for its construction still exists. So it's not a priest hive, it is a fake. So I- I'm sorry I did waffle on a bit then. No, I no, no, that was great. But I think... Very thorough. Thank you. And so I think you said seven priest hides at Harvington Hall, which I was lucky to see many of those when I visited recently. Sorry. Yeah, I did. I did see them. I know. I know. Sorry. And the um, secret corner, which is very exciting. So do we know how many there's there were obviously a lot at a, at a time, but do we know how many still exist today? Or do we know how many there were made at all during the Tudor period? Yeah. So number how many priest hides we've got now that this is something i was just saying that i get quite frustrated about because there are many places that claim they have priest hides and really the only way of determining if they're priest hides or not is firstly were the family catholic i mean that's the first thing were they recusants so were they the refusers not going to church and um, but not only that do you still have the original doorway to the priest hide or the or the contraption that you know you have to go through to get to it or the original flooring in there now if you don't really have these spaces, you don't have those those things, you can't really claim it is a priest title or not. And this is something that kind of a lot of people have battle with. But there are around 100 houses that still exist with priest hides in them. And there are around 130 confirmed priest hides that are genuine. And so there are many more that, that aren't, but around 130 that are. Now, the National Trust own about, I think, about a dozen of these houses that have priest hides in, and many of them you can still see to this day. Um, although Scotney Castle down in Kent, I don't think actually even show the priest hide at all. They don't even talk about it. Um, but they've got one, uh, quite, quite an ingenious one there. But there are far more in documents than there are that exist. So there are 400 plus houses that have priest hides in, that have documentation we know they're in. So the documentation comes from documents um so father john gerard who wrote an autobiography there's a lot there there's a lot in state papers and a lot in letters as well i will just point i'll sort of backtrack a little bit if it wasn't for um the gunpowder plot itself it'd be very difficult or impossible to write accounts uh, or to talk about priest hides because it if it wasn't for the narratives of father john gerard who wrote about the gunpowder plot and also uh, oswald tesman who was another priest we wouldn't necessarily know of the priest hide maker, who I'll talk about later, and other things as well. And the reason they wrote about it, or John Gerard wrote about it, is because basically accused of being complicit in the plot, of the gunpowder plot. So John Gerard was told to um, explain himself to the Jesuit superior general. And when he fled England in 1606, he went to Rome, uh, where he was publicly examined by the Jesuit father general on charges of being involved with the gunpowder plot. Now, I'm going off topic here, but actually it's quite interesting because the Jesuits do get blamed a lot for the gunpowder plot. Uh, and a lot of Catholics, you know, people think all the Catholics were involved. But actually, you can see there that they didn't agree with it because obviously he was put up in front of them and saying, look, explain yourself. So what he actually do- did was wrote a whole account of him being in England. And that's why we know about priest hides. But as I said, there's about 400 houses with priest hides originally, uh, or maybe a little bit more than that, but somewhere around 400. But what makes it very difficult is only 10 of the surviving 100 houses have documentation to do with the hides. So this is where it gets confusing. You can have a surviving hide with no documents, or you have a surviving document with no hide. 
And an interesting one close by to Harvington, there's a place called Huddington Court. And that was owned by the Winters, so Robert and Thomas Winter, the gunpowder plotters. So there you have two surviving hides, but only one documented. And the one that do is documented is one that no longer exists. And that was found just after the gunpowder plot. So you've got two hides that sit there with no documentation, one that no longer exists, but the document of it still survives. So it, it gets quite messy. So we don't really know how many priest hides there were. There were obviously quite a few hundred of them, we would have thought, but it said only about 130 still survive to this day. And so you were talking, when you were talking about the priest hides just before, you mentioned that some of these are just ingenious designs, and I obviously saw some really great ones at Harvington. So can you tell us a little bit more about the designs, whether they're kind of, is there a standard design for them? Are they different? And also who actually built these, designed them and built them? Yes. Now, I hope you're sitting tight and holding on now because this is <laughs> quite a big answer to this one. Yes. The most common type of priest hide that you will find is, and this is why people probably call them holes, because they are the smaller ones probably out of, out of them. Uh, the most common hide is under the closet floor, basically, near toilets, in the chimney stacks, uh, and they're on the outside wall of the house. So these aren't ingenious, and I'll explain why. So Elizabethan chimney stacks tended to be on the outside walls of the house. And it's very easy for a builder to create that kind of space within the chimney stack. So you find them by the chimney stacks quite a lot. But the outside wall is actually the most dangerous place to put a priest hide. And that's because John Gerard says in his account that priest hunters would start by walking around the house and note the space where a man might lie hid. So you can see them from the outside. And the classic example of this is actually at Coton Court, which I know is somewhere that you visited as well. At Coton Court, you, you arrive and you, you're met by the gatehouse and you have two turrets and the left-hand turret has two windows in it uh, and the right-hand turret doesn't have any window. So from a pre-sense from the outside, you look at the left-hand turret and say, well, there's windows there, but there's no windows there. So what on earth is going on inside that turret? It's not a solid stone turret. So there must be something going on in there. But I'll come back to Coton Court in a minute because actually they've done something to try and make it quite clever, although it's not. So I'll come back to, uh, it's a different type of hide uh, they've done there. So outside walls uh, and next to chimney stacks, very, very common. You'll find them there all day long. But there's a place called Carlton Towers up in Yorkshire. But what they did there, which was very clever, is they built the chimney stack, stack in the centre of the house and they filled the whole of the outside walls with windows to give the impression that nothing can be hidden. And this is the key. And there's something that they've done at Harvington Horn. And again, I'll mention this a little bit later on. Positioning of windows can be very, very clever. Now, the hide at Carlton Towers is 14 foot long, and it's one of the largest priest hides that still exist. So again, this is why I'm saying priest hides aren't necessarily little tiny boxes. And they also have one of the original ladders uh, to that priest hide. There are only three original surviving priest hide ladders in the country. There's one here at Harvington, that one there at Carlton Towers, and there's the other one at Ufton Court, which is the other receptacle, like Harvington Hall, that has four priest hides. Another type of hide that is also very common are the ones in the attics of the house. These are very common. Uh, and when the great search of Hindip of 1606, which was a search that went on for 12 days, uh, Robert Cecil's instructions for the hide, uh, part of it mentions, if there be a loft towards the roof of the house in which there appears no entrance out of any other place or lodging, it must of necessity be opened and looked into for those be ordinary places of lurking. I absolutely love that. I mean, what an amazing uh, quote that is. But it just shows basically get up into the attics, rip everything open because these are places where they tend to be hiding. So 
as I said, outside walls, fireplaces, next to the, uh, in the chimney stack and uh, in the attic are places that are very common to start putting pre-tides. Something that is rare to find, and but unfortunately you find it in all the novels, uh, is actually behind wood panelling. That is quite rare, where people find, think that, that would be quite a common one. And the only real, say legitimate, probably the only one that is a genuine priest hide that you would find um, is at Ripley Castle. And the reason it's very difficult to make a priest hide behind panelling is because if you imagine a wood panelling, it will have cracks around it and you have to try and disguise them. I don't know why I'm doing this with my hands. No one can see what I'm doing. You can see what I'm doing. Um, I'm doing like a square sort of shape. You'll be able to see through the cracks. And the danger is, is, of course, light shining through into it. And of course, you'll be able to see that. But what they've done at Ripley Castle is actually on the inside, they've put material around, again, I'm doing my thing with my hands, um, put the material around the cracks so no light can get in. And we know this is dangerous because um, Father Edmund Campion uh, got captured at a place called Lyford Grange in uh, July 1581. And there was a, a light shining into the hide or from the hide so they could see it. So the people at Ripley Castle must have known about this. Another type of priest hide that is uncommon and again very ingenious is one at Badsley Clinton. Have you been to Badsley Clinton? Yes, I went. I went when I was yeah in England this year. So Badsley Clinton has one effectively underground. It's actually kind of in the sewerage of the house. Um, entered from upstairs, which would have been the garderobe, the, the privy, the toilet, and you climb down on a rope, and you're basically ankle deep in mess really. And that's unusual having a priest hide on the lower floors because if you imagine. Uh, the priest hunters coming into the house, you want the chapel to be as far away from the front door because it gives you more time to hide. Those extra couple of minutes could, could save your life. So you enter it from upstairs, but actually it's lower down. So that's, that, that's quite another ingenious hiding place that's there. So the real ingenious hiding places are uh, more in the middle of the house. They're away from the outside wall. And the more ingenious priest hides, we say, are built by a man named Nicholas Owen. Now, Nicholas Owen, by trade, was a joiner, and he was a, he was a Catholic, um, and he was the servant of Father Henry Garnet, the Jesuit superior. Um, and he took upon all, all those skills that he learned as he was uh, an apprentice to be able to build the most ingenious priest hides. The, the man would have been incredible in the fact that uh, he had no, there's no blueprints written down of any of his work. Uh, he, his brain works in 3D, and he can see all sorts of things because... The houses weren't built with priest hides in them. They were all sort of later additions. So Nicholas Owen would be able to come into a house and in his mind, knock down walls, shift things, move things and conceal things. Very, very clever man. And unfortunately, he was actually captured uh, at Hindlip, not far from Harvington, on the fourth day of a 12, on the fourth day of a 12 day search. Uh, he gave himself up and unfortunately died on, uh, under torture in the Tower of London. So he was definitely the man that was not building these hiding places in the closets and on outside walls. He's building them inside the house. And what you will find is many of the most ingenious hiding places are around staircases or spiral staircases. Because when you go up a staircase, particularly spiral staircases, it confuses you. It disorientates you. And that's the purpose of it. So many of them are near there. So you've got um, Oxborough Hall in Norfolk, uh, which screens Nicholas Owen completely. Uh, you go up a spiral staircase, which is made of brick, and the whole illusion of walking up it disorientates you. You then go into what's known as the king's uh, chain, bedchamber, and then off into like another little turret, and it's kind of in the middle of this kind of like turret, just away from the outside wall, which is a very ingenious priest hide. We've got one here at Harvington, which I'm sure you'll uh, 
sure you'll remember, although you didn't go in it. I did try to get you in it, but you wouldn't. <laughs> um, the one in the library, which is where the wooden beam swings open in the book cupboard. Um, so you push on a wooden beam, it swings open, and you have this room that's eight foot long, three foot wide, and five foot high. So a, a roomy, again, another spacious priest hide, and it backs onto the spiral staircase. I'm going to save the most ingenious priest hide for you in a minute. Going back to um, Coat and Court and this one being in the turret of the house, what they have tried to do there is an example of what we call a double hide. So it's two in one, and it's there to try and confuse you. So it's now in the tower room, which would have been a secret chapel in those days. And it's in a hexagonal turret. And beneath the floor is a space that is four foot one inches high. And it's four foot by three foot ten inches at its widest. Now, if you open up the floorboards there and you find this space, you think you found the hiding place. But actually, if you climb down into it and open the floorboards up in there as well, there's another compartment below that one, which is the same shape but it's actually a bit higher. It's six foot three inches high. So it sounds ingenious, but actually it's not because you can see it from the outside. But they've, they've doubled up. So appreciators find the first place, think they found the hiding place, but actually the hiding place is actually underneath that one. In double hides, what you might tend to find is put some of, that, some of the, the items uh, maybe in there. So appreciators just think they found a hiding place, but the priest isn't there and they won't look any further. So we also have a double hide here at Harvington, which is under the stairs. So you take the stairs up, you find a compartment which would have effectively looked like the safe of the house, put some jewellery in there, put a bit of money, maybe some important documents, and the priest I just think they found uh, the safe, but actually through the wall there, then you'll find the hiding place. And double hides appear at other places. I think Huddington Court also has another one where the, where the priest, uh, the gunpowder plotters, the winter's owned as well. Something that is an interesting hide, and this is, again, something you might see in the novel, is at Scotney Castle and also at another place and the name completely has gone out of my mind um it's somewhere up in lancashire but it's actually behind a pivoting uh, stone so you walk down a corridor and think it's just a stone wall but actually it swings on a pivot and you've then got an actual hide behind the, the stone wall there's no way you're going to find that i mean that is that is very very ingenious but there's actually more than one priest hide builder at work here so you've got nicholas owen who is very ingenious and he's pretending to work down south or the Midlands. And then you've got another priest hide builder up north. Uh, and this is a guy called uh, Richard Holtby. Now, some of the designs up north are attributed to some similar ones to Nicholas Owen. We know the Jesuit priests used to meet a couple of times a year. So maybe Holtby and Nicholas Owen were exchanging ideas between them. But are you ready for the most ingenious priest hide? If I haven't lost you already. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm absolutely ready. So... The most ingenious priest hide is at a place called Sawston Hall in Cambridgeshire. Now, unfortunately, it's close to the public, so it's, it's in a private house. I'm going to try and explain it the best I can. I suggest people Google it because it really hurts my head to try and explain it. But if you imagine you've got a, uh, let's say the tower that the spiral staircase is in is more like a pentagon shape uh, with sort of one flat edge to it. And if you drew a circle in a pentagon, you're going to find that there's, a, there's gaps on the outside. That makes yeah, sense. I'm with you. The hiding place is built within the spiral staircase. It is just mind-blowing completely. So when you get to the, the, the sort of top landing, as it were, if you stand on the floorboards and look down, you'll see cracks and you'll see the staircase down below you. But in the very corner of the floorboard, it's in that kind of hollow space, in that sort of wasted space. So when you lift up the floorboards, actually in the stonework is the priest hide. 
I'm not really explaining myself very well. It's very difficult to explain without actually showing you. But all I can say is it's built within the spiral staircase. It is phenomenal. And that has got to be the work of Nicholas Owen. Now, we're pretty confident it's the work of Nicholas Owen because there's a house 12 miles away from Sawston Hall called Braddock's. And there's a hiding place there under the, under the fireplace. And we know that was built by Nicholas Owen because Father John Gerard writes about it in his accounts. He, he wrote that li Little John, which was his alias, Nicholas Owen's the alias, Little John built the priest hide. Now, the man who owned Sawston Hall was the brother of the lady who owned Braddock's. So there's a family connection between the houses. Nicholas Owen definitely had gone from one house to the other. And at Sawston Hall, you've got the, the ingenious hide in the spiral staircase, but there are two other hiding places there on outside walls. So it just shows they're two different builders. Outside walls are just some random builder, the clever one, Nicholas Owen. Quite a minefield, isn't it, when you get into it? So that's the most ingenious priest hide, I would say. But here at Harvington, we have the second most ingenious, which is the one in the library behind the beam. There we yes, go. I, I, I hope I didn't think, lose everyone. No, I actually think I filmed you when you were showing that one, so I'll be able to share that, actually. That's really good. So when you were talking there, Phil, you mentioned something about a 12-day search, which just sounds incredible. So how long could you actually be stuck in one of these hiding places? And and tell us about the sort of practical things, because, you know, we all love to know the nitty-gritty. So what are they eating while they're in there? And what about toilet? What are they doing? That, that is probably one of the, the most common questions I get um, is, what do they do for the toilet? Well, the simple answer is they just go inside the priest hide. But how long you could be in there for? I mean, this varies. I mean, there are loads and loads of searches that, that would have probably not been recorded. We know there are a lot of searches that did happen. Searches were quite, quite common. Uh, Oswald Tesman says that they were almost in daily danger because there were many searches. Now, he may be exaggerating, but he may be telling the truth there that, that it's almost a daily danger. Badgley Clinton, which I mentioned already to you, uh, that priest hide that's sort of under the floor, as it were, in, in the sewerage of the house, that was searched in 1591 for four hours. Now, four hours isn't really that long at all, but there were seven priests hiding in that priest hide. Now, they were in the toilet, so it'd be easy for them to go to the toilet. Thankfully, four days, uh, so four hours, sorry, being in there. What happened there was the lady who was in the house, a lady called Anne Vaux, who was a lady you certainly didn't mess with, basically bribed them, fed the priest centers and sent them on their way. So you've got four hours at Badsley Clinton. It's not that long. And then you've got Scotney Castle down in Kent, which uh, a priest uh, hid there for 10 days in the hiding place. So whether it's four hours or 10 days, I think I'd prefer the four hours uh, <laughs> if it was me. Um, but 10 days hiding there with his servants. Um, he jumped onto the ramparts of the castle and dived into the moat and swam the moat to escape. That was at midnight in, uh, on a December evening. It would be freezing cold, absolutely perishingly cold. Um, so you've got four hours or 10 days. Many searches lasted over a week. Uh, we know of that. So John Gerard hid under the fireplace at Braddock's, which I mentioned, for four days. So, yeah, there are many different kind of lengths of time you could be in there. As so the longest, as you've already mentioned, the longest um, is 12 days search. But what happened there was after four days, Nicholas Owen, the priest hole maker, and another servant called Ralph Ashley gave themselves up. And on the eighth day of the search, Father Henry Garnet and Father Edward Oldcorn were captured. But they then continued to search for four days, finding 11 hiding places in total, which I've already said. So not particularly great, I would say, for a priest. <laughs> um, in terms of provisions in priest hides, we know from documentation, Father John Jarrod again mentions at Braddock's the hiding place he wanted to go into. Mrs. Wiseman, a lady of the house, told him not to go into. He didn't. He went into the one in the chapel under the floor, uh, under the fireplace. And the hiding place he wanted to hide in was found. And it was found with a bottle of wine 
and some other food in there, probably like biscuits, things that can keep quite a long time. We also know that he was handed a quince jelly just before he went into the hiding place. Um, so you basically grab what you can. You go into the hiding place. You have a, a piss pot in there. Excuse my uh, terminology, but that's the correct term. A piss pot, a little bit of bread, some apples maybe. Just grab what you can, a bit of straw for a bit of comfort, and you just have to hide it out, and you just have to sit or sit it out and just stay there, basically. So the family would also do uh, other things. There'd be tricks that you could use to try and slow the priest hunters down. So normally the servants would go to the gate. You'd be a bit of toing and froing with messages pa passed backwards and forwards. You keep them talking. The, the mattresses in the bed would be flipped, so the cold side faces up. What you don't want is the priest hunters coming in, feeling the beds, finding five warm beds, but only four people in the house. There's obviously a bit of a giveaway there. But actually, that trick, we know they knew about that trick later on. Uh, there was a, a search at a place called West, Hall uh, West Hallam in, near Derbyshire, or near Derby, sorry, um, during the time of the Oats plot, so now the sort of 1600s. Um, and the priest hunter said, the mattress was cold in the upper, but I found it warm beneath, for they had turned it. So he was checking both sides of, of the mattress. You'd have to then hide your swords, your boots, any religious items also in the priest hide, just in case they brought dogs with them to try and sniff them out. So, yeah, you do a whole different range of things. But the priest hunters were quite sneaky because they would try all sorts to try and flush the priest out. So you keep them at the gate as long as you can. But unfortunately, what happened at Hinlip in 1606 of the 12-day search, 100 priest hunters turned up. They basically just smashed the door in. Now, when you're in the house, they spread into smaller numbers start shouting things like, we found them, we've got them, to try and force and sort of some sudden movement of a priest who may be hiding behind the wall or in a hiding place, and they'll find them. Sometimes they would leave the house and start shouting, right, we're off, we've had enough, you know, there's no one here. But one man would come back into the house on his own and start lurking around and saying things like, the heretics have gone, thanks be to God, thinking the servant's calling you out, and actually it's a priest hunter. Do you know, the amount of times I give myself goosebumps when I say that one, when I do, and I'm doing a tour and I start whispering, it's quite creepy. So you try all sorts of things. You may ring a bell into, into sort of hollow spaces, put your ears against the wall and see if you can hear hollow spaces between the walls. Yeah, a whole range of things the pre-centers would do, but you could be in there for a serious amount of time, which is not particularly great, I have to say. Something I wanted to mention, and I've kind of forgotten about it, I don't know if anyone would have clocked this. Probably not, because I'm waffling on, which I'm, I, I appreciate I do a lot. But Hinlip down the road has 11 hiding places, 10 miles from here. We have seven. We potentially had the same amount as they did. Why do two houses so close by have so many priest hides? And I get asked this a lot, so I'm going to answer this if you don't mind me answering it. But I'm going to answer it anyway, even though you haven't asked <laughs> me. I'm going to answer it. Uh, just in case anyone was wondering. No, why answer, there of course. Are so I'm, I'm interested now. So between 1598 and 1602, there was a dispute over the government of the church, uh, the Catholic church in this country. I mentioned earlier there, there were two types of Catholic priests, really. You had the seminary priests or the secular priests and the Jesuit priests. Now, of course, there are no bishops in England, because, of course, it's not a Catholic country. So Cardinal Allen was vaguely kind of in charge of the priest in England. Um, but from 1586, after this uh, meeting at Harleford, uh, Henry Garnet had set up an organisation smuggling priests and stationing them in the country. But in 1598, an archpriest named George Blackwell was appointed to take charge of the secular priests. So you've got Henry Garnet is the head of the Jesuits, and you've got this other chap, the secular priests. Now, there was a huge row between between the Jesuits and the seculars, considering they're both Catholic priests, there was a, a row. 
And actually, the Pope had instructed Blackwell and Garnet not to consult each other. So hence why you have two houses with a lot of priest hides. So it suggests that Jesuit priests were meeting at Hinlip down the road and the secular priests were meeting at Harvington because they didn't get on. They weren't allowed to consult each other. So that explains probably why we've got so many priest hides, but it also dates our priest hides to, we think, of 1603, because, of course, they were told not to consult each other at sort of kind of around that time. So that kind of dates our priest hides here. The other reason there was a row between the Jesuits and the seculars is because actually there were very few Jesuit priests in England at one time during the Elizabethan period. So I mentioned earlier some 300 priests had arrived by 1586. But actually, if I tell you the, the numbers of how many Jesuits are in England during this period. So uh, in 1580, there were only two Jesuit priests. In 1583, one Jesuit priest. In 1586, four Jesuit priests. 1598, there were only 16 Jesuit priests. Uh, and then in 1606, 40. And then later on, there were 100 to 150. So it just shows there were a lot more secular priests than there were Jesuits. So that's another reason for the dispute between the two. Sorry for that, but I thought I'd, I needed to mention it. No, that was that was very interesting. Thank you. So you were talking before, obviously, about how uncomfortable it would be to be hiding, you know, four or five days or more in, in a small space, fairly small space. So... You know this from personal experience, Phil, don't you? Because you've done some crazy things like sleep in priest hides yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so I've slept in two priest hides. I've slept in the one under the stairs at Harmington Hall five years ago. I can't believe that's five years ago. Um, yeah. 24 hours. And since speaking to you last time, I mentioned it in the last podcast, but I've done it now. I spent 36 hours in the best one uh, in the library. So I can tell you from personal experience that they're freezing cold. They are very uncomfortable and they are very, very dark. So the first time I did it, I didn't really appreciate so much that you have to be so quiet in priest times. This time round, I was a lot more conscious of it. And I was more conscious in the fact that I was actually, the priest tide is above uh, a corridor or the passageway. And every time I moved, the floorboards creaked inside the hiding place. And again, just that subtle creak, that noise could be your death sentence. Because also, something I didn't mention, the pre-centers would sit there in silence for hours. So if you're sitting there in silence, you're waiting for a cough, a sneeze. You're waiting for someone to go to the toilet even because it makes noise. Like, you know, it sounds silly, but even having a wee makes a noise. Because you can hear, we all can hear someone else in the house if they're going to the toilet. Because you can hear water splashing on water, can't you? And that's effectively what it's like. And there are no secrets in a Tudor house. I mean, they're not soundproof at all. So you can hear everything that's going on. Even when I was eating an apple, I was thinking, wow, can people hear it? Because it crunches, you know, so... You have to be so quiet and it makes me appreciate the dedication that for the, of the priests, you know, that how yeah. headstrong they were and their faith that kept them going. I mean, I'm not religious at all. And I would just be the first one to go, no, I'm converting. It's fine. You know, <laughs> but, but they were so strong uh, in their belief that they, they managed to get through it. I actually got a bit, I kind of joke about it, but actually it's quite serious. I mean, when I came out of the hide, when I got home, first thing I did was have a shower because I felt really gross really grubby. When I got into bed that night, I started to freak out a little bit because the thought of being enclosed back in, in the priest hide was, was horrible. It really scared the life out of me for whatever reason. I, I don't suffer with claustrophobia. I'm not scared of the dark, but lying in bed just thinking, wow, I've got this freedom. I'm lying here and it's nice and comfortable. If someone said to me, right, Phil, you need to go back in the hide tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't do it. And I, I refused to go back in the next day to actually clean it out. I put my hand in to get my, my, my bucket of wee. I got that I pulled that back out and threw that 
of course, threw that down the toilet and threw it away. It's uh, kind of just, yeah, it just, it, it must have played on their mind because both times I've slept in a hiding place now, while I've been in there, I've dreamt about being in there. And they're all my dreams are. They're just, I dream about being in the hide and, and not coming out. So they must have had all of these thoughts going through their head. You know, and actually the last time I went in, uh, some of the volunteers of the hall recreated a priest hunt, which people can still actually see on YouTube if you're I'm plugging it now. If you go on Harvington Hall's YouTube channel, you'll see my video diary of both of my experiences. You'll be pleased to know the 36-hour video diary is not 36 hours long. <laughs> it's about 20 minutes long. But during that, I was live on Facebook at the time while I was doing it. And uh, yeah, a, a group of about five or six were running around the house, shouting, knocking on all the, all the timbers, um, running over the top of the hiding place. And those sounds and those noises just really brought it home to me. And I actually started to cry, not because I was scared. It's the emotion of thinking, wow, like these mm. men had to go through this. People say, well, of course, they knew what they were coming to when they came to England. Yes, they did know what they were coming into. But at the end of the day, you know, majority of them, all they wanted to do was just practice their faith openly. You know, they, they, they weren't there to hurt people or to harm people. And, and the, the priests were doing their job so the gentry could still hear the mass. You know, I think that's fair enough. Yeah. So I'm, I'm getting flashbacks now. It's horrible. Uh, it's not nice. But I, I, said, I said this time and I said it and I, I'll say it again, but I will do it. I always say I'll never do it again, but I will do 48 hours next time. I know I'm going to do Ooh, it again. Um, that's a long time. Just pushing it. Yeah, I'm just pushing it a little bit longer. But you can't explain to someone how long 36 hours is when you're not doing anything. Yeah. If you think what I always say, imagine what you're doing this time yesterday, which is only 24 hours. Think of all the conversations you've had. You've been on your mobile phone. You've been on your computer. You've, you've eaten. You've been, maybe you've gone to the shops. You've done all these different things. And then add another 12 hours on top of that. But imagine not doing anything for that amount of time. Literally nothing. You sit there with your own thoughts. Now, if you're not mentally stable, I'm sure that, you know, it can happen. We all know our thoughts are our own worst enemy. So to be stuck with your own thoughts for that amount of time is quite a dangerous thing. But I've never been normal, Natalie. So, you know, it's... Uh... <laughs> oh, it's no fun <laughs> to be normal, Phil. It's all right. Fascinating. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to come back on and chat to us about priest halls slash hides. Um, but I can't let you go yet, Phil. I always ask my guests for a two to take away. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Do you have a two to take away for us? I do. And I'm going to sound really boring now because I've already mentioned it on the previous podcast. I can't stress enough if people want to know more about hiding places and just it, this is the history that people don't know about so much as well as they do the other period the amount of people that say i've never heard of priest holes what are they oh i didn't realize priests had to hide oh i thought elizabeth the first was this really nice queen and all the rest of it but actually there's another side to the whole story that people don't know about so there are a few books that i like to recommend father john gerrard's autobiography you can get on Amazon. It's called Hunted Priest. You've got my favourite history book of them all, God's Traitors, Terror and Faith in Elizabethan England by the lovely Jesse Childs. But there's also another book called God's Secret Agents as well. It's quite a chunky book, but it's a very good book. And again, that sort of tells the Catholic story of the Jesuits coming into England uh, and, and the safe houses and, and, and that kind of network. Um, but then you've also got the other side of that. You've got um, Professor Stephen Alford's book, The Watchers, uh, which is more about the spy network of Elizabeth. So you've got the, both sides of it. So they're kind of my, my takeaways. If you're interested, you want to get know more about this period, 
um, then they're definitely the books to look at. Fantastic. I always say I'm not going to buy any more books. And then what happens is I talk to people and then I add more books to my list. So thank you. And thank you, Phil, for taking the time to come back on and talk Tudors with us. And I would recommend everyone to visit Harvington Hall if they go to England. It's a beautiful house and I, I really enjoy visiting. But thank you for coming back on. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music